You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome to Understanding Sin and Evil, Episode 4, Who Watches the Watchers? In this episode, I'm going to be discussing four simple, well, not very simple, four pretty complicated verses that we find in Genesis 6, Blishid Vav. And those are the verses that become the basis for the story, the myth of the Watchers as it grows in Second Temple period literature. Let's look first at the context of these verses. So if I look at the previous verse, it introduces Noach. Vayhi Noach ben chamesh ma'ot shana, vayoled Noach et Shem et Cham ve'et Yafet. Noach was 500 years old, and he begat Shem, Cham, and Yafet. And then we have the beginning of a whole new story. Vayhi ki hechel ha'adam l'rov al pnei ha'adama, uvanot yuldu lahem. And it was, when man began to increase over the face of the earth, daughters were born to them. Vayiru vnei ha'elohim et bnot ha'adam, ki tovot hena, and the literally you could say the sons of God, but we're going to get back to that term B'nai Elohim in just a second because it doesn't really mean sons of God, obviously. But these, let's say, divine beings saw the daughters of man that they were good. And they took themselves wives of anyone which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not dwell or abide in man forever, since he is also flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were in the land in those days, and also afterwards, that the sons of God, Bnei Elohim, came, had relations with the daughters of man, and they begat or they gave birth to them. Those are the heroes or the strong men who from from days of yore, you could say, from the beginning of time or or have always been those people of renown. Now these are very puzzling verses. What are they trying to explain to us? First of all, uh, we don't know who Vnei Elohim are. Apparently they are beings that are able to mate with human women. We don't really know what the connection is between them and this limit of 120 years. And who are the Nephilim? I'm going to read those last verses for you again so you understand what the question is. It says in in verse 4 in, in Pasuk Dalid, Hanifilim Hayuva'im. The Nephilim were on the land in those days. and also afterwards. And then it says, and those which the, the Bnei Elohim had relations with Benota Adam, with the children of, of man, and they gave birth to them, they are the heroes, right? They are the men of renown. 
So who are the Nephilim exactly? Now, I think that you're already leaping to the explanations that most interpreters leapt to, which is that somehow this limiting of human life has to do with the fact that these divine beings mated with human women. And that the Nephilim are somehow their children. It isn't just that the Nephilim existed. It is that the Nephilim are their children, are their descendants. And that's how, in general, people in the Second Temple period understood these verses. But they understood them, of course, as more than that. Because right after we have this story, and again, I'm going to go back and look at each verse uh, in particular. Right after we have this story, we see, we see that it says right away, and the Lord saw that the evil of man was great on the earth. And all the inclination or every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were just evil all day. And then uh, God regrets making man and says, I'll bring a flood and wipe them out. Well, he essentially, he just says, I'm going to wipe them out. He doesn't really say that he's going to bring a flood yet. What we have, a statement that we have Noah. Noah has three sons. Then we have this story about this mating. And then we have the flood. So it's not too great a leap for the earliest interpreters to say, well, clearly the flood happened because of what just happened before. We can connect it. Now, not every early interpreter said that, and we're going to see that next week when I talk about how the Watchers are interpreted in the Book of Enoch. But for right now, let's go back and let's look like, just as we've been looking at Adam and Eve in its biblical context, Cain and Abel in its biblical context, let's look at these verses in, its, in their biblical context. What are they actually saying in this context? Are they actually saying anything about the flood? And, well, you could say, well, in this context, they must be because they've been placed right in between Noah and the flood. But the actual story is pretty encapsulated. In other words, you can actually just read the story on its own. It doesn't, you don't need the flood. You don't need Noah as a character. So let's take a look at these verses. Let's look at them in depth. Okay, who are these B'nai Elohim? They can't be the sons of God. What are they? Well, if we want to look at other cases where we have Bnei Elohim in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, well, we have them in, in Job. In Eof, we see that the Bnei Elohim are the angels. It's the angelic court. What does it mean? Why would we have the word Bnei, sons of? Well, it, it can mean a class. They're a class of divine beings. So you would have, for example, Bnei HaNevi'im is a class of prophets. When Amos, Amos, when Amos says, um, I am not a prophet or the son of a prophet, what he is probably saying is, I'm not a prophet and I don't belong to the guild of prophets, this class of prophets that existed in that time. I, I, I don't, I'm not a card-carrying member. So here we have kind of a class of divine beings. We're going to talk a little bit about the difficulty of saying, how can a divine being mate with human women? But in this story, it's not presented as a problem. This is something that I actually like to say a lot when, when, we, when we're reading ancient texts and we're reading the Bible or other, other ancient books or ancient texts, that sometimes something that's a problem for us is not presented as a problem in the text. 
Note how neutral the text is. The text seems to be fairly neutral about, perhaps fairly neutral about the mating. We're going to talk about that in a second. And it doesn't present a problem, how can this happen? It's saying, this is what happened. This class of divine beings came and saw human women and mated with them. Now, of course, we have in the Jewish tradition and in the Christian tradition explanations that try to deal with this and that explain B'nai Elohim as something else. In Jewish tradition, B'nai Elohim are usually explained to be judges. This is on the basis of Exodus 20, judges or or officers, judges or um, say ministers, people in charge. In other words, what's happening here? You have people abusing their power. And that is on the basis of the use in Exodus 22.7 or Shmot Chafbet Zayin. It's discussing the situation where someone has left his house in the care of another and possessions were stolen. So in the previous verse, it says that if the thief was found, he has to pay double. However, if the thief was not found, the question becomes, did the person who was watching the house, did he actually take what's missing? So it says, Im lo aganav, bal el Elohim. If the thief was not found, the owner of the house essentially approaches Ha Elohim. So the question is, what does Ha Elohim mean? The interpretation, the Jewish interpretation, has always been the judge. I mean, who else could he be approaching? It's a it's a court case. To know, to check whether he whether the the person watching the house has essentially grabbed something of his friends. Now, a modern scholar might say, well, actually what's going on is that you're you're supposed to go in front of God because in this case there is no evidence. So there's supposed to be some kind of divine oracle to decide whether what happened. But of course, in Jewish law, this would be a court case. Who would you who would you approach in a case like this? You would approach the judge. So Elohim here must mean judge. So since Elohim there is translated as judge, so maybe B'nai Elohim could be judges. Now, in fact, we have, as as the medieval commentator Rashi notes, we have a very clear example of the word Elohim being used to indicate control over someone or a kind of authority over someone. And that is in Exodus 4 and Shemot Dalid, when God tells Moshe, you will speak to Aharon, this is in verse 15. You will speak to Aaron and you will put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And there's, I'm going to be on your side. And I will tell you what you should do. And then it goes on, verse 16. And he will speak for you to the nation. And he, Aaron, will be for you for a mouth. And you will be for him, Le'elohim. What, does that mean you'll be for, for him for a god? Will you be a god for him? Well, you could say you'll be my representative. You'll be instead of me for him because you're telling him what to say instead of me telling you. But you also, it, it seems pretty clear that what it means is you're going to be in charge of him. And so you're going to be kind of, you'll be an Elohim for him. So that's one way of traditionally interpreting B'nai Elohim here. In the Christian tradition, there's an idea of 
Bnei Elohim as the children of Seth, who like who decided they want to matter, marry the daughters, the descendants of Cain, and they shouldn't have done it. By the way, this uh, finds its way into Jewish tradition through Rabbi Yehuda Halevi's classic work, the Kuzari, in which he brings this explanation. But in terms of a general modern scholarship, it's considered to be kind of they're considered to be divine beings. Now, certainly in the Second Temple period, they were understood to be angels. And in fact, what's very interesting is we can even see this in one manuscript of the Septuagint. Just to remind you, the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Bible. And as a translation, it dates to uh, about well, it dates to the Second Temple period. It's a translation of a text that's slightly different from what we have in the Hebrew Bible today. But at any rate, there are numerous manuscripts, of course, of the Septuagint. And in one of them, instead of the expected the sons of God, excuse my pronunciation, it has it has the angels or the messengers of God. So instead of translating it literally, it's already kind of skipping to the explanation. We're talking about angels here. And certainly in the Second Temple period, this was a natural leap to make. They're already frequently understanding the word uh, the word Elohim as angels because there's a general move to kind of distance God. In other words, to not see God as interacting as directly with people as perhaps people saw the divine in earlier generations. In the Second Temple period, there's a recognition, a growing recognition of the awesomeness of God. Because God is so awesome, he must be very distant from us. So how does the divine connect to this world? Well, there's a whole universe of angels that are more likely to connect to the human world. And so it wasn't a big leap for them right away to say that they're angels. And in fact, it's not very different from the modern scholarly interpretation of what B'nai Elohim are. So they see women, they see that they're good, which one assumes means that they see that they're pretty. I don't think that they were checking and seeing if they were giving, you know, alms to the poor. And they have, uh, they have children. And then we have a verse that's almost interrupting the flow, that is interrupting the flow. The Lord said, my breath shall not abide in man forever, and that he too is flesh. Now, I have to say here that that translation is already taking a leap. Why? Because shall not abide, lo yadon, the word is, we don't actually know what that word means. In context, it should mean abide or stay in. If, we're, if we look at the Akkadian cognate, a cognate is a word that is close in a similar language, in a language from a, in, within the same language family. So if we look at a similar word in Akkadian, we have dananu, and that means shield, be strong. So their translation is, my spirit shall not shield man forever, my spirit will not be strong in man forever. But it seems the basic meaning is the same. My spirit will not stay in man forever. He can't live more than 120 years. And of course, this is very difficult to understand in context because, in fact, 
afterwards, men are living far beyond 120 years. But if we just look at this short story, what does it seem to say? What does it make sense that it says? Well, we just had divine beings, let's say, angels mating with human women. And part of the idea is, okay, but you know what? They're not going to live more than 120 years. They're not immortal. Now, obviously, I'm being influenced here by the end of the passage, because what does this whole little section seem to explain? Again, it, it says, it was then and later, too, that the Nephilim were on earth. When the divine beings had relations with the daughters of men, who bore them children. And they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. So what does this seem to be explaining? Well, if we just take this, this story, just on its own, let's say we just read it, we say, what is this explaining? And we say, well, it's explaining where these heroes of old and men of renown come from. They come from this mating of divine beings with human women. So why did we need that verse in the middle saying that, you know, people aren't going to live more than 120 years? It seems to be an explanation. And again, let's think about the ancient Near East. Let's think about the people first hearing or reading this story, even within the context of Genesis, of Breshit. There are a lot of legends going around and a lot of stories going around with these great, wonderful myths of demigods. Where it's, for, it's, it's the same sort of thing, right? Gods come down and they mate with women you know, who they think are beautiful. And the idea is that, um, that these children, that, that you hear about these heroes of old, and frequently the way they're explained is, well, they're the, from the mating of a divine being and a woman. But don't think that that means that they are divine. These heroes of old are human, like other people. And that's why we need that verse in the middle there. Just like other people, they're not going to live forever. They were people. You can explain them as you like. You can explain greatness as being born from a mix of the divine and the human. You can explain it that way. But they are still human beings. They may have done great things. They may have been amazing heroes. But they were people and they died. That's what this little story seems to be explaining. If Actually, if we take it out of context, if we just look at those four verses, that's what it explains. However, obviously, we can't just take it out of its, out of its context. And certainly, the earliest interpreters of these texts did not take it out of context because right afterwards we have the flood. Now, as we'll see next week, just because the flood follows it doesn't mean that everyone saw this, what happened here, as leading to the flood. But in general, everyone, most people see it as negative. What's interesting, let's um, actually um, go back. If you remember, last week we talked a little bit about Ben Sira, who lived around 200 BCE in Judea. So Ben Sira has a reference to the princes of old rebellious in their might. And it's very possible that he was actually referring to, remember when we said that the Jewish tradition says that these Bnei Elohim were judges or princes or ministers who were abusing their power. It's very possible that Ben Sira is already seeing it that way, that he's referring to this rebellion in particular. 
but he's not he's not connecting it at all to the flood now of course he can also be referring to princes of old like the king of babylon in isaiah 14 4 to 21 and vuchadnezzar in daniel 4 7 to 30 so those are also possibilities. What's interesting is that Ben Sira's grandson, uh, who translated his work into Greek, actually translates the princes of old as ton archaion giganton, right? The ancient giants. So that's a very interesting uh, switch that we see. And, and in fact, it's interesting, particularly because here's if we see if we think of it as Bensira as part of part possibly the closest to what we would call today's standard Jewish tradition within Second Temple literature, and then we have his grandson already taking it to the giants, and and you say wait, but we didn't read about giants. There are no giants. There were heroes, the men of old. Now you're probably not saying that because you already know who the Nephilim are. So let's let's go back and say who are these Nephilim who are in the last verse? Who are they? And I purposely didn't translate it. Right now, there's an interesting meaning to the word Nephilim because you want to translate it as the fallen ones. Nephilim, we could say, is from Nafal to fall, but that doesn't seem to be the case. No one fell here. In the plain meaning of the text, there are no fallen angels. And it's not even clear that there's a rebellion. Now, I will say that absolutely, in Second Temple literature, throughout, these angels are considered bad. What they're doing is bad. It's a corruption of the order of the world. And they were not allowed to mate with you and women. And it's terrible. But in the verses themselves, it's, it remains pretty neutral. And it produces people of renown. But then we also have the Nephilim. The Nephilim who were there in those days. Who are the Nephilim? Well, if we look at the, at the Bible, and, and every, every good Second Temple Jew who's thinking about what does this mean, is thinking of other verses in the Bible right away. So in Numbers 13, 33 we have this is when the spies the miraglim who went to see the land of israel come back and they're reporting on the inhabitants and there we saw the nephilim the children of the giant or giant children or of the if we say b'nai is of a class of we say nephilim a class of giant of the nephilim and we were in our eyes like beetles or bugs and so we were in their eyes they were so huge that we were bugs we were bugs to ourselves and we were clearly bugs to them so here we have this idea that the nephilim are related to the land of Israel, interestingly enough, but more importantly, that they're giants. Now, in Numbers 13.22 and in Deuteronomy 9.2, the inhabitants of Canaan are also called the descendants of the giants. Yilidei obnei ha'anak. So there's this idea that in the land of Canaan, in the land of Canaan, 
there are giants. But it's this verse at the end of Bemidbar Yud Gimel, the end of Numbers 13. Oh, and just as an aside, I always use the numbering of the Jewish Hebrew Bibles. Sometimes it's off a verse or two from uh, Christian Bibles. So in Numbers 13.33, we have a connection between the word Nephilim and these giants. This was considered an obvious explanation of what the word Nephilim means. What are Nephilim? Nephilim are the giants. And that's the assumption, as we will see next week, in almost all interpretations of, of this story. So what do we have here? In other words, there are giants. And despite the fact that the verse says, and in those times, that's when the Nephilim were there, early interpreters read it as we would read it. In other words, the Nephilim were what were produced by the mating of angels and human women. In other words, they were giants. And that kind of works well with the idea of giborim, which we translated earlier as heroes, because giborim can also be strong men. So these are the giants. Giants resulted from this mating of angels and human women. And then what the idea is going to be, of course, is that somehow this corruption of nature produced these giants, and these giants are by nature a corruption and are bad. Uh, Next week we're going to see two different ways that this plays out, actually even within the Book of Enoch, where there's one interpretation that doesn't really have that much to do with the flood, where the giants themselves are evil, they cause all sorts of problems, and and their punishment is death. And another interpretation where the giants cause all sorts of evil, and that evil among human beings causes the flood. And then the question is going to be, to what extent does this story explain evil after the flood? In other words, did the flood stop the evil caused by this illicit mating? And we're going to discuss that next week as well. Now, I entitled this episode, Who Watches the Watchers? And we haven't said the word watcher yet, right? Where is the word watcher in this whole story? And the answer is the word watcher is gen- was generally used to as a word for either angels in general. There are a couple cases in Second Temple literature where watchers were used for the for angels in general, but usually the word watchers is used to describe specifically these angels. These angels who, in early interpretation, sinned. Right? These angels sinned, and they mated with human women. Why are they called watchers or guardians? And the answer, we have to look actually at the word for angel, irin in Aramaic or irim in Hebrew. This may actually simply mean messenger by a switch of ayin for tzadi, tzir, right? Um, this actually happened in, in Proto-Semitic. It could split between an ayin and a tzadi. The same letter. So you want to have an ayin in one in one cognate language and a tzadi in another cognate language. So it could simply be messenger. However, there is a tradition, and we'll talk about this a little next week also, there is a tradition that angels are awake all the time. They are constantly awake. Angels never sleep. And therefore, irin could also be understood, or irim could also be understood as erim. They're always awake. In other words, they always watch. They always guard. What seems to have happened in early translations 
and explanations of this literature was that the word irim or irin was specifically started to be specifically used for these angels and was then translated in Greek as watchers or guardians. So when we talk about this story in modern scholarship, we will call it the watcher's story or the watcher's myth, even though the word watchers, and in fact, the word irim is not used in the biblical story. However, the myth, the story that grows from it, very early on in Second Temple literature, is connected with this word watchers, the watchers, the angels who started this whole thing. In our next episode, we're going to be discussing how this myth plays out specifically in the book of Enoch. Now, I'm going to remind you, or I'm going to let you know if you haven't heard this before, that the book of Enoch is actually a bunch of little books all about Enoch. And we're going to start with the book of the Watchers, which you can tell from its title really focuses on the Watchers myth. But the book of the Watchers itself includes several different versions of this story and what it means for continuing human evil. And we're going to discuss that next week. So meanwhile, please leave your questions and comments on my blog at understandingsin.com. Again, I love to hear from you. And because I can't see you, this is the only way we can interact. So please leave me comments and questions. And I'm looking forward to speaking to you next time. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.